So if you brought a Bible with you, I want to give you a minute to open to the book of 1 Peter. It's in the back of your Bible, and you should be able to find it by now. 1 Peter chapter 5 is where we're going to dig in today, so I want to encourage you to get ready for that. Um, but as we do that, I want to remind you that when we started this series, we entitled the entire series, Standing Firm, and we created artwork all around the series that has to do with storms and life's difficulties and the challenges that we face because that is the major ongoing theme throughout First Peter. He keeps reminding us that life does have difficulties, which comes really so contrary to what you often hear preached about in pulpits today, as if somehow if we were just um, faithful enough, if we just trust God enough, then all of the roads will be smooth and everything will be easy, and yet that's not what the scripture teaches. And so Peter digs into that for us, and we've been digging into that now for several months because he keeps coming back to this idea that life is full of storms. There are in all of our lives difficulties. There are in all of our lives hardships. There are disappointments. We all face temptations. We all deal with various trials. And there is absolutely no way around that. Now, praise God, there's also some nice, fun, easy, relaxing seasons of life. But have you noticed that just like the seasons of trial, the seasons of fun and relaxation don't last forever? So there are easy times, there are good times, there are times that are not so stressful, but there are also really tough times, times that are stressful, that, that stretch our faith and try our patience and, and build in us endurance and, and push us almost sometimes to the breaking point. One of the most uh, popular places to retire in the United States is down on the Gulf Coast. And the reason for that is pretty obvious. There's beautiful beaches, there's a, a slow pace of life, it's unbelievable weather and all of that wonderful stuff. So people go down there. But every few years, if you live on the Gulf Coast, you're gonna get visited by something called a hurricane, right? Every few years, you are going to be boarding up your windows, you're going to be going to higher ground, you're going to be praying that your house is still there when you get back, because the winds always come up. It might not happen every year, but it will happen every few years, and if you're living in some of those towns, you are going to face those kind of trials. The same thing is true in Southern California. People come here from all over the world. People come here on vacation. People come here to retire. People are waiting to move here. Even though we see a lot of people moving out of here, guess what? The population is not dropping because people can't wait to get to a place where there is no snow, where, where there's beautiful beaches and the weather is nice all the time. It's a little bit overcast this morning and we're all out there bundled up and shivering because we can't even handle it, right? People move here for those reasons. But you know what? Um, it, it, every now and then in Southern California, there's a little thing called an earthquake, right? And if you grew up here, earthquakes don't bother you at all. If it's like under 6.5, you don't even bother getting out of bed for an earthquake, right? <laughs> and and, and I, I'm just used to it. I'm like, oh, hey, that was an earthquake. And, and yet, if you're not used to this, earthquakes are absolutely 
terrifying. I was thinking about this the other day. It was uh, 1994. Many of you will remember the infamous Northridge earthquake took place in 1994. And it just so happened that we had relatives from out of state who were visiting during that time. And they were staying in uh, uh, one of those high rise hotels over by Disneyland. And you remember it happened early in the morning and the whole place shook and it was a serious, serious earthquake and there was a lot of damage and all that kind of stuff. And we all sort of looked and went, oh, wow, that was, that was a big one. We turned on the news to see what happened. Our relatives packed their bags and went home that day. <laughs> They're like, you know what, Disneyland, forget Disneyland. I am out of here. And they went home because they were like, I am not sticking around for any more of this kind of stuff. Guys, here's the deal. Even the most wonderful seasons of life get interrupted by difficulties. It happens. And Peter's been trying to give us some perspective. He's been trying to give us some direction so that the inevitable storms in our lives don't destroy us. And so we've been picking that up throughout this book. And today we come to Peter's uh, final instructions for us. And it's here at the end of chapter five in this letter that he addresses the most dangerous storm that any of us faces. In fact, it's a storm that all of us face. Let's see what he has to say. We're in 1 Peter chapter five, beginning in verse eight. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And so we finish the book of 1 Peter. In typical Peter fashion, he goes out the same way he has been going through the whole letter. He pulls absolutely no punches. He doesn't speak in vague terms, hoping you'll figure out what he means. He says directly what he means, and he brings up this issue of the greatest adversary that any of us will ever face, the greatest storm that any of us will ever have to go through. And this storm is not a thing. This storm is an individual. He's our enemy, our adversary, and he has a name, the devil. Your adversary, the devil, it says. Actually, he has lots of names if you read your Bible. He's called the devil. He's called Satan. He's called Lucifer. He's the father of lies. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the evil one. He's the tempter. He's the serpent. He's the dragon. He's Beelzebub. He's the ruler of this world. He's the accuser. He's the enemy of our souls. And the list goes on and on and on. Lots of names. Same guy, Satan. No matter what you call him, he is an archangel 
who was created by God as one of the most powerful and glorious of God's creation. He, he was not created as an evil being. He was not created to sort of have a foil for God, someone for God to battle with. He was created as the angel of worship in heaven. He's an archangel, one of the greatest of God's creations of all time. But as you probably know, his pride caused him to rise up against God. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden after he tempted them, he gave in to this idea that maybe he should be his own God. Maybe he should not bow to the God of the universe. And for that, he was cast out of heaven. And since that time, he has been warring against God in every way that he possibly can. So, he fights everything that God loves. He comes against everything that God loves. And guess what God loves? You and me. And so that puts us right in the way of fire. If you're a child of God, you can be sure of this. Satan is hell-bent on destroying you. But let me be just absolutely clear. Satan is not some mythological creature. If you have a picture of Satan and he's that little cartoon character with the pitchfork and the horns who stands on your shoulder and tries to get you to do bad things, you don't understand who we're dealing with here. He is not a cute little cartoon character. He's one of the most powerful beings ever created by God and he wants to destroy you and Peter doesn't beat around the bush. And even as I stand here today talking about him in these terms, I realize that there might be anybody either in this room or watching online listening to this who is going, oh my goodness, we're making a big deal out of nothing, that Satan is just kind of an idea, personification of evil. Listen, if you believe that, you haven't read your Bible. The scripture is very clear. He's real, he's powerful, and he is serious about taking you down. And it's not because you're so special, although you are. And it's not because you're so crucial to the plans of God, although you are. In fact, Satan's attacks on you have very little to do with you. It's not about you. Satan is attacking God. And there, God has uh, no weaknesses. God has no chinks in his armor. There is no way for Satan or anybody else to thwart God, to overcome God, to hurt God, to destroy God. And so if you're Satan and you want to somehow have an impact negatively on what matters the most to God, what do you attack? His children. And that's what he does. And Peter doesn't pull punches. He just comes out and says, listen, call me a fool. Call me ridiculous. Say I'm being over the top. Say that this is really just too mystical for me. And he goes, no, none of that's true. Here's the fact. There is a very real tempter and he is attacking the people that God loves. So he calls him a roaring lion who's waiting and looking for someone to devour. That's interesting what that verse says. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Seeking someone, someone, anyone. 
It's not about the person that he's attacking. Sometimes we get this idea and we think, well, I must be really special to God because I sure get attacked. You're really special to God, but that's not the reason that you're getting attacked. It's not because somehow if he could take you out, he could ruin God's plan. It's because he is prowling around like a lion and he is going to find someone, anyone to devour. I don't know too much about this. I've never really been a hungry lion, but my guess is that, you know, if it's a gazelle or if it's a warthog, it really doesn't much matter. You're going to go after the prey and you're going to eat. Satan doesn't care about you, but he hates God and God cares about you immensely. And he doesn't have the power to hurt God, so he attacks you. So if you're a child of God, Satan is going to come after you. He's going to pull out all the stops and he is going to use all of his effort to try to destroy you. Is everybody having a good time? See why I didn't preach on this on Mother's Day? (laughs) He's going to try to destroy your faith in God. He's going to try to ruin your family. He is going to try to derail God's plan for your life. And don't think for a second God doesn't have a very specific and very special plan for your life. And Satan is going to try to get you off track. He is going to try to get you to waste your life chasing after things that ultimately don't matter and will not satisfy. That's what he's going to do. And let me tell you something about Satan, the destroyer of people. He is really good at his job. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a lion in the wild. It's one thing to go to the LA Zoo, San Diego Zoo, something like that, and see the lions, because what are they doing? They're laying in the shade. That's pretty much all you ever see at the zoo. They're like, oh, I could see a paw or a tail. They say there's a lion back there. For all I know, there's just a guy wagging a tail behind a rock. But uh, I had the privilege uh, one time in Uganda, I was there on a ministry trip and uh, we added a couple of extra days to our trip so we could go to a place called Murchison Falls, which is a wildlife reserve there in Uganda at the end of the Rift Valley, which is where Bo and Mem are heading to the Rift Valley Academy. And we went there um, and spent a couple of days and got to do a little two-day safari. And it was amazing because as you drive through this wildlife preserve, there's just, it's like watching the Lion King. Just picture whatever animals are in that movie are there at that preserve. And they're just there in the wild and you're just watching them interact. And they put you in these like, um, these big sort of uh, fortified um, Jeep kind of things and, and you start heading out and you're just driving out into the wilderness and you're just kind of looking and, that, and the drivers have walkie-talkies, right? And they'll be like, oh, over here there's some giraffes and look, there's some gazelles running across here and the hippos have just come down to the water and you're like, oh, isn't that interesting? And you got your camera and you're just taking pictures and all of that. But then the, the news comes on the radio and they say, a lion has been spotted in quadrant three. And the guy says, hey, we're changing direction. And all the different drivers that are all around this wilderness, they start going to what they call quadrant three because there's a family of lions that has been spotted. And all the tourists want to see is lions. Everybody wants to see a lion. So we all go booking it to this and we're all on this dirt road, just like Jeep after Jeep after Jeep of people. And on the hillside there, we see not one, but a whole group of lions. 
and they're just sort of casually walking down the hillside. Now, between us and them, there's probably 10 different kinds of wild animals that lions like to eat. And the lions are up there, and suddenly we start to notice that the gazelles are taking off, and, and the giraffes are running away, and all the other animals are taking off, and you start to see these lionesses, and they're coming down the hill. Now, we're all outside of our Jeeps with our phones going, <laughs> we're taking pictures of this, right? And these things are getting closer and closer and closer, and it's so great because now they're close, and you get great pictures, and you want to put your arm around and do the selfie thing like that, but these are wild lions, and they're getting closer and closer, but then all of a sudden, the lionesses together, almost like they were taking direction, they crouch down, and they get low in the grass, and immediately, our guide says, get in the truck, <laughs> get in the truck, right now. And people are like, oh no, <laughs> they're taking more pictures. He's going, get in the truck right now. Get in the truck. And there's people all over not getting in the truck. I'm like hiding under the truck. I don't want anything to do with these things. And they are moving toward us. And that's when our guide says, do you notice there's no animals between us and them? What do you think they're crouching to sneak up on? And we got in the truck. And, and you see this and you just have this sense of, oh man, that was a dangerous moment. And Peter says, our enemy is just like that. A lion creeping, hiding in the tall grass, down, ready to pounce, watching, ready to come after us. That's what he's like. He's on the prowl. He's looking for opportunities to attack the children of God. And if you're not yet a child of God, don't rejoice. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want to attack you because he does. You're not immune from Satan's attack just because you're not a follower of Jesus. In fact, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, let me just tell you what he's doing. He is doing everything in his power to keep you away from God. He's doing everything in his power to confuse you with lies. He's doing everything in his power to deceive you, to convince you that you can do a better job of leading your own life than God can. And as far as he can keep you from God, that's exactly what he is trying to do. He is trying to destroy you, to question God's existence, to question God's goodness, to question God's love for you and to distance yourself from God. Satan is a roaring lion, and he is serious about devouring his prey. All right, I've done the best I can to lay out the bad news. I have never had Satan star in a sermon so much as he does today. But let's get to the good news, because this leads to a question. If all of that is true, and it is, if all of that is true, what should I do? I had a guide saying, get in the truck. He told me what to do. Does God's word tell us what to do? We're being attacked. We're in danger. He's sneaking up on us. He's ready to pounce. He's serious about devouring his prey. What should we do? Look back at verse 8. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit. Excuse me. 
Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. As we talked about a few weeks back, this idea of sober spirit that Peter keeps bringing up, it's meant to, uh, to evoke in us this contrast between sobriety and drunkenness. And you may not know from experience, but you may have watched somebody else to know that when a person gets intoxicated, they sort of stop controlling themselves in the same way they would have controlled themselves if they were sober, right? And he tells us to be of sober spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, it says this, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why does he give us those two things in contrast? He's trying to show us that in the same way that when you have too much of an intoxicating substance, and maybe you're not somebody who loves wine and you're like, well, it doesn't say anything about tequila, so I'm good. No. Here's the thing. Intoxication is intoxication. It doesn't matter how many drugs they legalize. It doesn't matter how much alcohol is legal or any of those kinds of things. I'm not talking about whether it is okay to have a drink of alcohol. We're talking about drunkenness here. And the scripture is absolutely clear that drunkenness is a sin in every case. And one of the reasons is because instead of being under the control of the Holy Spirit, we are now under the control of this substance, whatever your substance is. And, and this is one of the things, okay, don't go on a, too much of a, a, um, a trail here, but, but this is one of those things that I just want to warn us about as the body of Christ. Listen, if you, if you have somebody preaching and telling you that the Bible says it is a sin for Christians to ever drink alcohol, they haven't read the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that it's a sin for Christians to ever drink alcohol. It just doesn't. It would be easier for me if it did. It's a nice, easy line to draw and say it's a sin if you do this. But it doesn't say that. It gives us freedom and it allows us to do that and yet it warns us against drunkenness or intoxication. And guys, if you're... you're, uh, intoxicating substance of preference is edibles or something that you smoke or something you shoot in your vein or something you snort. The principle is the same. If you become intoxicated, you are no longer under the lordship of Christ in that moment. You're under the lordship of the intoxicating substance. And I think some of us as Christians, because we have the freedom to drink alcohol, and I have zero problem with any Christian who drinks alcohol, by the way, but if because we have that freedom, it's almost as if we we allow ourselves to draw the line and we go, well, it's really bad to drive if you're under the influence. So I'm gonna go ahead and plan to drink too much at this event, but that's okay because I have a designated driver. That's okay because I'll call an Uber or something like that. The issue isn't just about drunk driving, which is also a really bad idea. The issue is about being controlled by something other than Jesus. And so let me just warn all of us, be careful. Your adversary is prowling around like a roaring lion. He's going to find a place of weakness and he's going to attack at that place of weakness. But, but Paul tells us, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That is, be under the control of the Spirit of God. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self 
control. So you're controlling yourself by the power of God when you submit to the Spirit. And and like I said, substitute any intoxicating substance for wine. Be careful. When you're intoxicated, you're under the control of that substance. To be intoxicated is the opposite of being under self-control or Holy Spirit control. Infamously, soldiers who get a weekend of leave go out and get drunk. That's just kind of what you would expect. If you saw a movie and the soldiers got a weekend of leave and they didn't go hit the bars, you would think this is the most unrealistic movie I've ever seen. That's just kind of what is expected, right? But guys, during a time of war, if they're drunk, it's a disaster. There's too much at stake. There's so much danger. So Peter tells us to be sober, to be alert, because this is not fun and games. The enemy of our souls is serious and he's ready to pounce. So let's get practical. Just think about the areas where people sometimes lack self-control. Now, I'm sure this doesn't apply to any of you, but probably someone you know once struggled in one of these areas. When we think of areas where we get swept up and we lose control, it's easy to think of alcohol and drugs and and, uh, addiction and those kinds of things. Obviously, those are good examples of that, but there's a thousand examples of this. How about pornography? Pornography is one of the great blights of our society today and it is impacting marriages and it's impacting single people and it's impacting people's worship and it is drawing people away from God and it is readily available and it is free and it is easy to get to and it is hard to get caught at and it's all of those kind of things and it's incredibly dangerous. And if that is something that is a temptation for you, if that is a challenge for you, if that is something that you are drawn to, then he tells you, be extremely careful. Be sober, be alert, remove yourself from situations where you're likely to keep stepping in those holes. And he tells us to do that. Maybe your issue is not alcohol, drugs, or pornography. Maybe your issue is anger. And maybe when something just strikes you the wrong way and presses on your wrong nerve, that's when you're about to do something that is going to be destructive and hurtful and devastating, and the enemy knows that. Maybe your issue is gluttony and just being around food, it's, it's, it's what you literally feed on when you should be feeding on your relationship with God, but you're trying to fill a void and loneliness with food. Or maybe your thing is television and you just gotta be in front of that tube all day long. Or maybe you can't quit clicking on the internet. Or maybe you're a hoarder and you can't stop buying things. But all of these things are just ripping away at your life. See, it's one thing to go, oh, well, I guess I'll, I'll stay away from heroin. I've heard that'll really take you the wrong direction. But I bet you I mentioned something there that every one of us can relate to. We all have areas of weakness, and Peter is warning us that in those areas of weakness, we can expect to be attacked, Yesterday in our men's Bible study, we were talking about this verse in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, and we won't have time to look it up here today, but in Proverbs 4, 23, it says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. He says, watch your heart. You know, you get on a motorcycle, you put a helmet on, 
You get in your car, you put a seatbelt on. Why? Because you've got to protect your body. God says, oh, your, your body is so much less crucial to protect than your heart. Guard over your heart with all diligence because there is a lion and the lion is on the hunt and she is crouching in the tall grass watching the herd and she is looking for any sign of weakness. A young one that wanders away from the rest of the herd. Uh, An old one who can't really run well enough to keep up. An injured one who can't defend itself. The lion always attacks at the point of weakness. And our enemy is just like that. So just be honest with yourself. Ask yourself, what are some of my points of weakness? Where are the areas where I need to build some larger protection? What are the things that I need to be most careful of? What are you doing to take precautions so that you don't get devoured at your point of weakness? One of the most dangerous things a gazelle can do in the wild is to just wander off from the rest of the herd. Because by themselves, there's no way that they're going to be okay. The lionesses are brilliant. They, they surround before they attack. They attack as a team. They come all at once. If you wander away, you're just a sitting duck or a sitting gazelle. But what do we tend to do when we're struggling? We tend to separate ourselves. When we're hurting, when we're discouraged, when we're depressed, what do we tend to do? We tend to isolate ourselves from the family of God. And when we do that, we can be sure that the attacks are going to keep coming. By the way, this is not a commercial, but this is why we have grace groups. This is why we stress this so much, because the Christian life is impossible to live on your own. We absolutely need one another. And it's in those grace groups that we can build those relationships that will become a source of support and protection for us especially during our times of difficulty. And guys, here's the problem. It's so easy to not build important and deep relationships of trust with other believers when everything is cruising along in life. But when suddenly the crisis comes, that's too late to build the trust. It's too late to board up your windows when the hurricane is blowing at 120 miles per hour. You have to build the relationships in advance. When we wander from the people of God, we are putting ourselves right in the crosshairs of Satan and we will get attacked and we will not be able to defend ourselves. And so we have to keep that in mind. When you are super busy, when you are super sad, when you're feeling guilty, when you're struggling, when you're dealing with temptation, the easy thing to do is just isolate, not share it with anybody. Don't ask for prayer. That might make you look weak. And what would they think of you if you did that? And so the enemy just convinces us, keep your distance, keep your distance, keep your distance. And we think, well, I couldn't possibly share this with my grace group or with my dear friend or my brother or sister in Christ because if I did, they would probably judge me and they would think, oh my gosh, I wouldn't want them to know that I actually struggle with something because I'm sure I'm the only one. 
But then you get in a group and you start to share your struggle and people go, yeah, I've been through that myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm going through that too. Yeah, that's a struggle for me too. And suddenly support groups get formed and, and people begin to lift one another up and help one another through those kinds of things. If you isolate yourself, you are guaranteeing that the lion who is waiting in the tall grass is going to pounce. But together, we can resist him. Look at verse 9. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing, this is fascinating, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Guess what? You're not the only one. Guess what? You're not alone in this struggle. You're not the only one who is just drawn to click on the things you should not be clicking on. You're not the only one who is developing a flirtation with somebody at the office. You are not the only one who is tempted to misuse the funds that God has entrusted to you. You are not the only one who is suffering from depression. You are not the only one who is going through the storm. He says... You can resist him knowing that you're not alone. We're all in this. Guys, I don't care who you're sitting next to. I don't care who you look up to. I don't care who you're impressed with in Christianity. Let me tell you something. Every one of us is still dealing with the flesh. Every one of us is still getting attacked. Every one of us is suffering. This is not just a you thing. And we've talked about this at length during our study of 1 Peter. And I realize that there's a lot of reasons that we can suffer. But whatever reason you might be suffering right now, I want you to understand this. You are not alone. And you will not be able to effectively resist the attacks if you try to do it alone. So press in. Press into God. Resist the devil. We don't have to fall for his tricks or be devoured by his attacks. You can put this in your notes. We won't look this up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it tells us that no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation will give a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The temptations you face are common to man. So you're not the only one. You're not the only one dealing with the temptations you're facing. In James chapter four, in fact, you're in First Peter. Just turn left to the book of James real quick. It's the next book to your left. James chapter four and verse uh, seven. It says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil. That's two ways of saying the same thing. When you submit to God, that's taking the way of escape that 1 Corinthians has promised us. He says, press in. He says, draw near to God. And as you draw near to God, guess what? God will draw near to you. There's not going to be an attack when the strongest, most powerful being that ever was, ever will be, or could ever be imagined is standing right next to you as your source of protection. Draw near to God. That's how you resist the devil. Guys, he's gonna always tempt you to distance yourself. Well, I'm so ashamed, I just can't talk to God right now. I'm so embarrassed, I just can't share this with somebody who would pray for me. I'm so tired that I just can't be with the people of God. He's gonna try to isolate 
isolate you and to keep you alone, but God says, we're in this together. Draw near to God, draw near to the people of God, and suddenly the protection goes through the roof. So there's balance to this whole thing. On the one hand, we do have a really dangerous enemy that is looking to destroy us. So you better be sober-minded and alert. But on the other hand, it is possible to resist him. We have one another. We have an all-powerful God of grace. And because of that, this season of struggle is not going to be the final chapter in your story. I know it's late in the sermon, you're asleep by now, but I need to repeat that line. This season of struggle is not the final chapter in your story. That's what God promises us. This is not the end of the story. In fact, go back to 1 Peter 5, look at verses 10 and 11. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. That is the final chapter of the story. He perfects you. He delivers you. He builds you up. He takes care of you. Our enemy is powerful, but not as powerful as our God. The, the scripture says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. So yes, let's realize there is a roaring lion who wants to pounce. Let's take the necessary steps to protect ourselves against that, but let's not live in fear because Satan is a defeated foe. God has already done everything that needs to be done to strip him of his power. In fact, his power over the people of God is only whatever we give him by saying yes to his temptation and believing his lies. He is a defeated foe and our God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or even think. That's who's in your corner. That's the end of the story. The enemy may be having a field day now, but this is not the end of the story. I have read the end of the book, and guess what? God wins. God wins. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I love how Peter ends the book because he talks to us about God's amazing grace. There in verses 10, 11, and 12, he talks about the God being a God of grace. You guys, this letter is written by one of the greatest failures in the history of the world, a guy named Peter. Peter's the guy who chastised Jesus and tried to talk him out of the cross. Peter's the guy who swore he would never, ever deny him, only to follow him to the place where he was being beaten and tortured and to deny him three times and curse him in the process. Peter's the guy who promised he would never do that, but let Jesus down again and again and again. And Peter's the guy who was forgiven and restored and given a future and a hope and used by God in one of the most powerful ways anyone's been used in the history of the world. Read John 21 and it'll blow your mind. That's the same grace that is available to you and me today. That's why Peter stresses it. If you've ignored God your whole life and, and you've fallen for every one of his lies, God's grace is sufficient for you.
you're hearing this message today, it's not by accident. It's because the God of the universe is making a point to get to your heart. And it doesn't matter if you have been walking away from God, running away from God, cursing God, giving in to every temptation that the enemy offers you. Jesus still reaches out his hands to you and says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He offers you salvation. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you peace. He offers you hope. He offers you joy. All of that is available in Christ, no matter what the enemy says to you. And if you're somebody who does have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you find yourself stepping in the same holes again and again and again, and you're discouraged, let me remind you, The grace of God is sufficient for you too. Moses killed a man out of anger, but when he turned to God, he received grace. David was guilty of adultery and murder, but in repentance, he came to God and he received the grace of God. Peter denied and deserted Jesus in his time of greatest anguish, but in John 21, Jesus called him back and he came back and was restored and God used him in a powerful way. And in those same ways that he has used grace in the lives of those people, he wants to use his grace in your life too. So I'm telling you, I know the enemy is telling you, I'm never gonna overcome this one. I just might as well give up. I just might as well isolate myself. Nobody's ever gonna understand. God says to you, come to me. I will carry your burdens. Yes, you're gonna be attacked and you're gonna keep being attacked, but there is a God who is all-powerful and his, his calling card is grace. By his grace, we're saved. Life is full of storms. Our enemy is powerful. But our God is an awesome God. And he loves to pour out life-giving grace on everyone who comes to him in contrition and repentance. And he gives us new life. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now awed by your greatness, amazed by your grace, thankful for your love, which we do not deserve. Every one of us facing the same enemy with his predictable approach of lies and temptation and distortion and deception. He came, you said, to kill, steal, and destroy. But you, Lord Jesus, came to give life and that more abundantly. And so we choose by your grace to cling to you. We choose to draw near to you. And we ask you, God, be our big brother. Walk with us and protect us from the attacks of the enemy. Thank you, God, that the enemy is a defeated foe, but you are the King of kings and Lord of lords and you will never be defeated and you love us we're so blown away by you god draw us closer to you we pray in jesus name amen